I graduated high school in 1976. Some of you are thinking, man, that's ancient history. Pastor Sandy walked with the dinosaurs. What's with that? But stretch your imagination. And I want you to think with me back what life was like in the USA in the mid-70s. A gallon of gas cost 59 cents. The average annual income was $16,000. Gerald Ford was the sitting president. The movie Rocky, not Rocky 2 or 3 or 4 or 5, just plain Rocky was released in 1976. And a new company, Apple Computers, opened its doors for business. Now, I know it's a stretch, but with a good imagination and a good history book, you can trace back in time even further than 1976. I mean, you can conceptualize what life was like in 1776 at the American Revolution. Or in 1576 as Reformation swept across Europe. Or even 6 B.C., near the birth of Christ. Or 976 B.C. in the days of King David. You can even think back that far. You can even go all the way back to 2076 B.C. When Abraham pitched his tents on the hills of Judea. Now we have to strain. But we can envision life all along the timeline. All the way back until we reach two major impasses. Two events obscure our understanding. They're so monumental that they sort of change the landscape. Our assumptions that we develop in this life become blurred. We no longer have a reliable frame of reference for judging before these two events. The first of these events is the flood of Noah. You see, before the deluge, the earth had a radically different ecosystem. It had never rained. The planet was watered by heavy dew. A vapor canopy shielded us from radiations that trigger aging. That's why humans lived ten times longer before the flood. There was no fear between man and animals. Try to imagine a wolf lying down with a lion. Or a lamb, either one. (laughs) For us today to envision a pre-flood world, it involves a lot of guesswork, a lot of inference. The second event that rattles our perspective is the fall of mankind. It's even tougher to go back, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And imagine what life was like for Adam and Eve before they ate the forbidden fruit, before they threw a wrench in the gears of all that God had created. If you think our understanding is vague and hazy prior to Noah, it's more so before the effects of sin. Before their fateful decision, Adam and Eve lived in an unspoiled utopia. Work was no sweat. Eve was built for pain-free childbirth. Husbands and wives never argued. How can that be? Wow, that sounds like science fiction. Humans converse with animals, at least they did with snakes. They even took walks with God in the cool of the day. I mean, the wildest imagination can't assimilate that. But now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about from today, I want you to think in the opposite direction. I want you to go back out now into the future. Hollywood does this all the time. Movies theorize what life will be like in 2076 or 2276. 
You can think into the future fairly accurately until again you reach two impasses. Afterwards, any reliable hypothesizing breaks down. Two events will have a colossal impact on life. They'll create a life we can't dream of today. The first is the millennial kingdom of Christ. We studied this last week. Jesus is coming back to earth to repair all that sin has damaged. Can you imagine being here on the earth after Jesus tames the jungle and restores the planet to a garden-like paradise? King Jesus will right all wrongs. He'll establish his kingdom, a benevolent monarchy. He'll crush crime. He'll reverse the effects of sin on nature. He'll usher in a glorious age of peace. Man, you won't even know the place. But I want you to think even further out into the future, further down the road. For what comes after this thousand-year reign of Christ? That's our subject in these last two chapters of Revelation. God takes us now to the brink of time, to the edge, when time fades into eternity. And there we find that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And at the outset, we should realize that our ability to grasp all that John describes, well, it's feeble at best. In fact, as John receives a vision, there are times when John just puts down his pen. He stops writing. The Lord has to say to him, write, John. He just stops writing. He's so in awe of what he's seeing. This morning, we get a glimpse of heaven. A vision that captured John's heart and that I hope captures our hearts as well. Revelation 21 begins. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. <coughs> For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now the physical universe as we know it today will one day be no more. Some Bible teachers like to say God will uncreate what He created. He'll undo what He did. And the immediate question comes, then why did he do it in the first place? I mean, what did God get after all of his creative efforts but great grief? And I'll tell you the answer to that. What did God get? He got you. He got you. I mean, the whole point of what we call life today is for God to populate eternity with people who really desire fellowship with him. That's what this life has been about. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson, he points out that verse 1 here teaches the non-eternity of matter. A good point to make in many of today's academic circles. That matter had a beginning and it'll have an end. It was created by God. And God, and what God creates, He can also uncreate or eliminate. Hebrews 12 tells us that one day everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I mean, God wants to prove the vanity of the material stuff that humans have lived for and idolized. Hebrews 12 closes, our God is a consuming fire. And that's how it all ends. Hey, global warming will do us all in. It will. But it's not greenhouse gases. It's God who gasses the place. 2 Peter 3 verse 10 predicts, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. In Revelation 20, when the great white throne appears, 
everything material flees away. You remember Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is forever. But not so much with the heavens and the earth. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away. They're on a timer. And after Jesus reigns a thousand years, the clock expires. The current universe will go out in a blaze of God's glory. And in Isaiah 65 verse 17, God tells us what He'll create in its absence. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former shall be remembered, shall not be remembered or come to mind. Here in Isaiah, the Hebrew word for create is bara. It's the same term from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that's used at the original creation. It means to create out of nothing. In the future, God doesn't refashion the elements of His first creation into something similar yet better. Rather, He starts from scratch to bring into or bring about a world very different than its predecessor. He creates a new heaven and a new earth. I'm sure you've noticed that folks today are into recycling. Paper, metal, plastic, I mean even motor oil gets recycled. All the trash today gets recycled. For a time, my wife tried recycling. She would keep a little thing in the garage that she'd put her milk cartons and her newspapers in, and she, she was recycling. I had mixed feelings about this. Now understand, I appreciated her noble efforts to try to keep the rainforest tidy. The problem, though, is that she was cluttering up my garage. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But. I suppose we all should do more for the environment. But I'm just comforted to know that God isn't all that gung-ho about recycling either. God made this earth a no-deposit, no-return planet. It's not going to be recycled. God is going to design a new heaven and a new earth. It may resemble the old in certain aspects, but it's a world that's qualitatively and substantially very, very different. And you'll immediately notice the contrast in the worlds here in verse 1, John adds, also there was no more sea. Today the oceans are 70% of the earth's surface. In the new earth, there'll be no sea. Today the global ecosystem depends on the seas for water and weather. Without the seas, life is unsustainable. The sea collects and neutralizes the earth's pollutants. But in the new earth, a sea won't be necessary. For one, there'll be no pollution. And the new earth won't need to be watered. There'll be a river, we'll learn later, from which people will drink. Trees and fruit will grow along its banks. There's also, though, a spiritual, mystical meaning here. Throughout Scripture, the sea is always sinister. You know, the ancient Israelis, they feared the sea. It was a home for evil. The Phoenicians were the seafarers, not the Israelis. In Revelation 13, the beast is seen rising out of the sea. You remember in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus rebuked the storm, we're told He rebuked the sea as you would a demon. The sea has always been a symbol for sin and for darkness and for evil. In the New Jerusalem, that reminder will be eliminated. Verse 2, 
Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In John 14, verse 2, Jesus ascended into heaven, or before he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And we can assume that for the last 2,000 years now, Jesus has been working on our mansion. The carpenter is constructing heavenly digs. I believe what John sees here coming down from heaven like a bride, this new Jerusalem, is what most of us refer to as heaven. You know, scripturally speaking, there's only one earth, but there's three heavens. You know, the Bible talks about the first heaven. This is the blue sky. You'll walk out and you'll see it. It's the atmosphere above us. But there's also what the Bible refers to as the second heaven. This is the night sky or beyond our atmosphere, what we call outer space. But there is a third heaven. It's God's eternal throne. This is where our friends and loved ones who died knowing Jesus now reside. In 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul mentions his vision of God, he uses this terminology. Paul tells us he was caught up into the third heaven. Now John sees heaven come to earth. It comes in the New Jerusalem, the holy city. Apparently, the New Jerusalem serves as God's capital forever. Jesus will reign from this New Jerusalem. And when John sees this city coming down from heaven... It reminds him of a bride on her wedding day. She's decked out in splendor. She's walking down the aisle toward her groom. No doubt she's the object of his desires. You know, this world is an awe-inspiring place. There are vistas around the globe that are so gorgeous. They just take your breath away. But Jesus created this earth in just six days. Imagine what he's going to come up with after having worked on it for 2,000 years. You know, whenever I officiate a wedding, I always tell the groom to sort of cheat out into the aisle, scoot out into the aisle, because he doesn't want to miss his bride as she walks down the aisle. I tell him his bride will never look as pretty as she'll look on her wedding day, and it's true. I've met some ugly women, but, but I've never met any ugly brides, that's for sure. Something happens to them on their wedding day. They just get pretty. I doubt if there's ever been a groom disappointed at the sight of his bride. I mean, all brides are gorgeous. And that'll be our reaction to heaven. You know, I've met people who genuinely worry that heaven will be a letdown, that somehow heaven's going to disappoint them. To the contrary, heaven will exceed your most daring dreams. Heaven will dwarf all your expectations. Don't ever think you'll miss certain aspects of earth. Hey, we should be homesick for heaven. When we get to heaven, we won't be homesick for anything on this earth. Heaven is infinitely greater than now. The eternal city will satisfy our every desire. You remember Abraham? He was a man of faith. And he saw much in his lifetime. He saw the metropolises of Mesopotamia and the mighty walls of Jericho and the monuments in Egypt. And yet all that this world offered left Abraham unimpressed. 
Hebrews 11 verse 10 tells us, He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham and company refused to settle down and make this world their home. They longed for eternity, God's city. Abraham was labeled a stranger, a pilgrim on this earth. Hebrews 11 verse 16 says of Abraham and his heirs, They desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Abraham was a man of faith. And ever since, people of faith have longed for a better world, a better place. And here John sees it. He sees this city coming down out of heaven. And that's when he hears a loud voice. Verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. You've heard of the streets of gold and the pearly gates. Just know, heaven's chief feature is God. God Himself is the number one attraction. Later in John's description, we'll find no temple in heaven. No place to gather with God and His people. And here's why. In heaven, God's presence and glory permeate every single corner. We enjoy unbroken fellowship with God in heaven. It's Jesus that's going to make heaven so heavenly. And here's the quality of life you'll find in heaven now and in the new Jerusalem to come. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine? In the kingdom, death will be rare, but it will still exist. Here, though, death is finally abolished. No more undertakers and grave diggers. There'll be no cemeteries on the new earth. Death will be dead. I heard of a tombstone engraved with just six words. I told you I was sick. (laughs) No one heeded the warning. There's a gravestone in Richmond, Virginia under which the body of Margaret Daniels is buried, it reads, She always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. Sin created a fallen world that makes us vulnerable to sickness and to pain and ultimately to death. And here in Revelation 21, sin is no more. Therefore now sin's symptoms can be treated. Grief goes. Tears are dried up. There is no more death. Psalm 30 verse 5 Proves true, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And here the morning is finally broken. You know, we teach our toddlers the sound that a cow makes. You you know, what sound does a cow make? Moo, moo. What sound does a kitty cat make? Meow. What sound does a pig make? Oink, oink. What's the human sound? What sound do humans make? When a human comes into this world, what's the first sound that he or she makes? That's that's the human sound. We cry. And to a degree, we keep on crying throughout our sorrows, the sorrows of this life. But one day, Jesus is going to dry all tears. He's going to put an end to death and sorrow. There's no crying in heaven. 
Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And this blows my mind. You know, the Greek word means new, not in the sense of time, but in the sense of kind or quality. In heaven, there is a newness, there is a freshness to all of life. Everything in heaven has that new car smell. It does. I've never really owned a car fresh off the assembly line, but I've been in a few. And the combination of lubricants and sealants and paints and conditioners, they all combine to produce this distinctive new odor. I read recently where the toxicity of the odors in a new car can pose a health hazard to a person. I've kind of held on to that. I kind of console myself into thinking it's healthier to ride around in a beater. But in heaven, the new car smell, it never subsides. And it has no side effects. Everything smells new in heaven. After a million years, it's still going to be new. You know, one of today's disappointments are the diminishing returns on everything earthly. You know, over time, even spine-tingling thrills lose their luster. All of life becomes mundane. Did you know that some Hawaiians actually move? I've met people. Oh, where are you from? I'm from Hawaii. Well, why aren't you still there? Can you believe this? People get tired of Hawaii. I mean, that doesn't compute to me. They get bored with paradise. I mean, how fickle can that be? There'll be nothing boring or mundane in heaven. You'll never get tired of heaven. It's always new. Everything will have that new car smell. When you do it, whatever it is, it'll feel as if it's the very first time. I remember my first time shaving. It was a really big deal. My dad set me up with my own can of cream, my own razor. He gave me some general directions. This was big stuff. Man, I was shaving, man. It was fun. I shaved twice a day the first week. (laughs) Hey, but it didn't take long for shaving to become old hat. But if we have to shave in heaven, I'm not sure we will. I kind of hope not. But if we do, every time... We pull out that razor. It will be just as thrilling, just as fun as it was the very first time. Everything in heaven feels brand new all the time. There's always a new car sent. God makes all things new. And he said to me, write. Now apparently, John had stopped writing. And why is he there? He's there to write these things down. But he's laid his pen down. Apparently, he's so in awe over the wonders of what he's seeing, he's forgotten the task at hand. Jesus reminds him, right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. Remember, John was there when he heard Jesus say from the cross, it is finished. Now he hears him say, it is done. The heavy lifting was done on Mount Calvary. But now, all that was paid for has become a reality. All the tuition that went into mankind's education has finally yielded an eternal graduation. We're in heaven. Jesus says, I am the Alpha 
and the omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the A or the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z, the last letter. All of life begins and ends with Jesus is his point. Hey, Jesus is not just the reason for the season. He's what life is all about. And Jesus promises, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who asks. Did you know five days without water and your body will die? Likewise, the soul needs spiritual water. And Jesus is the thirst quencher. He's the one who gives refreshment, not stingily or reluctantly, but freely to all who ask, to all who thirst. Jesus gives a drink to anyone who will admit their lack and confess their need. If you have a parched soul this morning, I suggest you come to Jesus. And then verse 7 tells us, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. You know how we overcome? We overcome by faith. In 1 John 5, verse 5, this same John writes, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The world we live in is full of hardship and hassles. Disappointments breed doubt and cynicism. He who overcomes does so by faith. They persevere by faith. They hold on to God's love and His truth. They walk by faith and not by sight. And yet those who don't overcome, those who lack faith, who succumb to sin and doubt and compromise, they are left out of this city. In verse 8, John lists all of those you'll find in the lake of fire. He says, but the cowardly. And notice here, cowardice apparently is not just a weakness. It's a sin. There's no excuse for cowardice. Not when Jesus has promised to make us overcomers. I'm afraid that some of us have gotten content living our lives in the middle of the road. We're like Switzerland. We're neutral. We've got one foot in the world and one foot with Jesus. Shame on us. We need to stop straddling the line. We need to remember that the only thing you'll find in the middle of the road are dead skunks and yellow streaks. And I don't want to be either one. We overcome through courageous faith. He says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable. Abominable. What's that mean? That refers to an act that's repulsive to God. I researched this this week and I made a list of all that the law of Moses called an abomination. Disregarding God's distinctions between clean and unclean was an abomination. Giving God an offering from ill-gotten gain was also referred to as abominable. Leviticus 18 verse 22 and 20 verse 13 describe homosexual practices as an abomination to God. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 puts cross-dressing into the same category. Idolatry was an abomination, as was offering to God a blemished sacrifice, less than your best. Which means, if anybody here this morning has ever been guilty of giving God the leftovers of your time and your money, I have. 
Be careful about pointing your finger at other forms of abominable. You need to take care of your abominable before you worry about other people's abominable. The list goes on. Murderers. Sexually immoral. This includes recreational sex, pornography, one night stands, friends with benefits, shacking up, adultery. Anything outside of heterosexual marriage. Not just homosexuality. He also lists sorcerers. The Greek word is pharmakias, from which we get our term pharmacy. Pushing or partaking of illicit drugs is abominable. As are idolaters and all liars. I mean, God loves truth. Why would he want to spend eternity with a habitual liar? That would get under God's skin, I bet. Hey, everyone on this list, we're told, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Actually, the residents of the lake of fire sound a lot like the past lives of some of the people in this room this morning. Myself included. Realize, there will be folks in heaven who lied. And who did drugs. And were homosexuals. And acted cowardly. And slept around. And watched pornography. But here's the difference. They repented. They were willing to live differently. Not perfectly. But differently. Rather than pursue their way. Their goal was God's ideal. That's what they pursued. Those who get excluded from heaven and assigned to the lake of fire are the unrepentant. Folks who never cared about what God thought and were never willing to change. Those who just turned their back on God and walked away. Those are the ones that are in the lake of fire. There is forgiveness. Everybody in heaven will be proof of it. That there is great mercy and forgiveness with God. Verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Now this is such a spectacular sight. The angel repositions John on a high mountain to give him a panoramic view. John sees a city. Or is it a bride? I mean, it's adorned like a bride, but he calls it a city. It's sort of like when Tony Bennett sings, I left my heart in San Francisco. Or when Frank Sinatra croons, New York, New York. They sing of a city as if it were a woman. As if the city feels and calls, as if it's a person. And this is how the angel speaks of the heavenly city. Realize, heaven is a great city. It's a hustling, bustling city. You know, here on earth, we sometimes begrudge city life. Cities become incubators for all that's bad in the world. Crime and poverty and congestion and noise and pollution. We romanticize moving to the more pristine countryside. But apparently, God likes cities. God likes the city. Cities bring people together. They spawn culture and creativity. New New ideas bubble up from within the city. It's the greenhouse for change. 
There's always excitement brewing in city streets. And this is what heaven is going to be like. It's a city. Don't think of heaven as some, a bank of puffy, white, cumulus clouds. For all eternity, we're going to live in a city that never, ever sleeps. You and I were created for the city, not for the isolation of the country. God designed us for community, for the buzz of city life. Now, as we'll see, there are aspects of the New Jerusalem that are more like a garden. And I suppose heaven is a city with lots of green space. But the garden is in the midst of a city. John sees this holy city descending out of heaven. What happens to it afterwards, after its descent, he doesn't say. Does it just sit and hover between heaven and earth? And become a celestial satellite of the new earth? Does it lock into a parallel orbit with this new earth? Does the new earth even have an orbit? We know that this earth doesn't revolve around the sun. Verse 23 is going to tell us that the city has no sun. That the Lamb is its light. In eternity, everything is going to revolve around Jesus. I suppose one of the certainties we glean from this description is the beauty and the color of the city. Verse 11 Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. I mean, heaven's like a gemstone. Imagine a huge, glimmering diamond floating down out of the heavens. This is what Jesus has been preparing for you for these last 2,000 years. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. You've heard of the Great Wall of China? There's a great wall in heaven. It's a wall with gates and with foundations. You know, John here is speaking of a future city as if it were an ancient one. He's limited to features familiar to he and his first century readers. I'm not suggesting the city doesn't have walls and foundations, but they could be far more sophisticated than even we today can conceptualize and contemplate. In verse 13 on the gates, there were names written on them which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. To me, it's fitting that the twelve gates bear the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Why? Because the Hebrews were the gate through which the rest of the world entered the family of God. All God's covenants were first offered to Israel. Verse 14, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, And on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Twelve tribes are written on the twelve gates and twelve foundations. On uh, on the foundations are written these twelve apostles. At His first coming, Jesus chose twelve apostles. Other apostles came later. There may even be apostles today. But you got to know, the original twelve who walked with Jesus had a special authority. They're in a unique category. And here's proof. You know, one footnote, there are 12 foundations, thus 12 apostles. Obviously, somebody replaced Judas. Was it Matthias? Was it Paul? Well, one day we'll all find out. We'll look at the foundation and we'll read that 12th name. Verse 15, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 
Now, 12,000 furlongs is about the equivalent of 1,500 miles. Imagine a city with base dimensions of 1,500 miles square. This is a huge city. If the upper right-hand corner was in Boston, then the other three corners would land in Miami, in Phoenix, and in Calgary, Canada. The New Jerusalem would cover about three-quarters of the area of the United States. This is a city roughly two and a quarter million square miles. And the most mind-boggling dimension is the height of the city. It too is 1,500 miles high. Realize that today the Earth's atmosphere extends only 600 miles above the surface of the planet. That means that if the New Jerusalem set on the old Earth, it would extend 900 miles into outer space. More of it would be above the atmosphere than below the atmosphere. The size of the Lamb City is just a tad smaller than the moon. Imagine, too, a city with three-dimensional living space. This is 3D living. Its inhabitants occupy not just the ground floor or the base, but they live all throughout this huge city. That would increase the living space, the potential living space, to 3 billion square miles. That means there's plenty of room for all the redeemed. If you're a sinner out here today and you think, man, there's not room for me in heaven, you're wrong. There's room for you too. In fact, commentator Henry Morris, he crunched some numbers here. He guesses that maybe all 100 billion humans have lived throughout history. And if of those 100 billion, oh, maybe 20% got saved, that means that every person, if they got an equal plot in the New Jerusalem, would end up with 75 acres. Plenty of room in heaven, man. Obviously, there won't be a real estate shortfall in heaven. There'll be plenty of room for the whosoever wills. Now, we know the city's dimensions. What we don't know is its shape. Some Bible teachers believe that the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a dome. Others, a sphere. Others believe it's in the shape of a cube. You know, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was in a cube. It was 15 by 15 by 15. A more provocative suggestion is it's in a pyramid shape. You know, ancient pyramids were all associated with death in the afterlife. It could be that this idea of a pyramid was a heavenly memory left over in the mind of fallen man. There's lots of theories, but today you're fortunate because you've come to the right place. Because I'm going to tell you, what shape the New Jerusalem will actually appear in. You're going to hear it today at Calvary Chapel. You know what shape the New Jerusalem will appear in? It's going to come in good shape. It's going to be in good shape. Verse 17. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits. At 18 inches per cubit, that's 216 feet. According to the measure of a man... That is, of an angel. Now, whether this is 216 feet thick or 216 feet high, we're not sure. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The word jasper means a speckled stone. And the city was pure gold like glass. This gold is so pure, it's transparent. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And you might want to just look on the big screen at the colors here. The first 
foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire, a blue. The third, chalcedony or aqua. The fourth, emerald, a bright green. The fifth, sardonyx, a brownish red. The sixth was sardius, a deep blood red. The seventh, chrysolite or greenish yellow. The eighth, beryl or yellow. The ninth, topaz, a reddish gold. The tenth, chrysoprase, an apple green. The eleventh was jacinth or a burnt orange. And the twelfth, amethyst or purple. It was a beautiful, beautiful foundations to this city. The actual identity of some of these stones is uncertain. The ancients would use different names for the same stones, so an exact identification is difficult, which makes it hard for me to prove my theory. <coughs> but I believe that these 12 stones were the same stones that appeared in the breastplate of the Jewish high priest. And they're going to be a reminder to us for all eternity of Jesus' high priestly ministry. That when we needed Him, He stood in our place. When no one else would do it, He interceded for us. Boy, one thing's for sure, the heavenly city is a kaleidoscope of sparkle and color. It will certainly stimulate the senses. And then verse 21 is fantastic. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. Now understand, the pearl is the only gem that's not a mineral. A pearl starts out as a speck of sand in the belly of an oyster. It begins as an irritation. As it irritates the belly of that oyster, secretions are released that crystallize around that speck of sand. And the process forms a beautiful pearl. To me, this is so fitting that the 12 gates, the entranceways into the new Jerusalem are pearls. For this is what God has done with the irritations of this life. We enter His family. We enter salvation through pain and through heartache. It's through the sufferings of Jesus that God makes a way for us to go to heaven. It's through our own suffering and the irritations of life that God matures us and gives us a strong, gem-like faith. For all eternity, every time we go in and out of these pearly gates, we'll thank God for the irritations of this life. And the street of the city. And notice it's not streets, plural, but it's street, singular. Unlike today's cities, there's not a maze of arteries crisscrossing through. There's no spaghetti junction in the New Jerusalem. There's only one street because there's only one way to God. That's through Jesus. And John tells us this street is made of pure gold, like transparent glass. Imagine a street made of gold. You know, what we value most in this world, they use as asphalt in the New Jerusalem. Can you only imagine what the treasures are there? Verse 22, But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And this is odd to me. For in the former Jerusalem, the Jewish temple was the city's chief attraction. It towered above the city's skylines. It was the one place on earth where you were sure to meet God. You worshipped and performed sacrifices and took vows and celebrated feasts and did your rituals all at the temple. 
The Jewish temple was the epitome of religion. And this is exactly why it no longer exists in the New Jerusalem. The absence of a temple here means that God has put an end to religion. One day He will. In essence, God is against religion. Ultimately so. He tolerated Jewish religion for a time to teach us lessons. But in the end, religion does more harm than good. People focus on the law, not love. They get fixated on the do's and don'ts, on the rules, rather than on the ruler. God desires a love relationship with His people, not religious obligation. This is why there's no temple. In the end, all that really matters is the Lord and the Lamb. Verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Now keep in mind, our sun... I mean, it's not just a wood-burning stove, man. It has a diameter of 864,000 miles. The sun is 108 times the size of the earth. It gives off heat and light through thermonuclear explosions that are constantly occurring on its surface. The sun's inner temperature is a balmy 35 million degrees Fahrenheit. And yet the presence and the glory of God will do for the new heaven and new earth what our sun does for this earth. The radiance and the brilliance of Jesus will be more than enough to give off the light and warmth and growth that this city needs. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it, and guess where they'll they'll lay their honor? At Jesus' feet. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, There shall be no night there. Again, nighttime and darkness are symbols for sin. You know, it's rare that a crime is ever committed in broad daylight. Why? Evil loves the cover of darkness. But neither night or dark exists in the New Jerusalem. And this is good news for kids. Check this out. No bedtime in heaven. Because you never have to go to bed. Apparently, we have bodies that won't require sleep. Verse 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall be no means, by no means, enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. This eternal city will be abomination proof. It'll be stain free. It'll never be soiled by sin again. And why? Because all its citizens will say, man, we've been there, done that. We don't want to go down that path again. The new Jerusalem will be inhabited by only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, is your name written in that book of life? It is if you've trusted the Lamb of God to take away your sins.